0: We're going back to John chapter six. Remember John chapter six. It's kind of a unique chapter in the book of John because the whole book of John, he's recording seven miracles. Remember, this is his purpose statement back in John chapter 20. Seven miracles to persuade and convince his readers that they can put their trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life alone. It's not walking the aisle. It's not giving your heart to Christ. It's not asking Jesus Christ into your heart. It's not about giving your life to Christ. It's not about saying the sinner's prayer. It's about Christ dying for your sins and rising again and you trusting in that alone. And the moment you do that, you have eternal life. This is why John is recording all these signs. What's really interesting about John 6 is there's only really seven hand-selected signs by John. Two of them are in John 6. Two of them. In the first 21 verses, we get these miracles. The feeding of the 5,000, his walking on water. Uh, we know that the feeding of the 5,000 was obviously a very public miracle because it probably involved more like 15,000 people. That was 5,000 men. 15,000 or more probably people that he fed that day. And that was a very public miracle. The walking on the water was a private miracle for his disciples. And so what's uh, what's interesting here is... The same crowd that he just fed is the same crowd that he's going to talk to for the rest of the chapter in John 6. That's good context to have because they're going to ask some questions and even you as an audience are going to remember, as an audience member, are going to be like, what's their problem? Like, what's their deal? They, they, they literally just got fed from a, you know, a little boy's Chick-fil-A kids meal, right? The equivalent of that they literally had a buffet out of a little boy's meal. Like, why are they saying some of the things they're saying to Jesus? We'll, we'll see that as we go through. And, and and this is often known as, you've probably heard this before. It's called the bread of life discourse. Now, discourse is actually a good term for this because as you go through the text, I'm, we'll, we'll do this as we go through, but you're going to pick out that this is kind of a back and forth. Jesus is, is teaching, but there's a back and forth. You're going to see that the crowd And their responses, their questions, the things that they say, they shape what Jesus is going to say to them. Go to verse 25. Let's just kind of jump through this. It says, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Go to verse 28. Then they said to him, right? Verse 30. Therefore, they said to him, verse 34. And then they said to him, and then you could keep going. Verse 42, verse 52. And and what Jesus is going to do is throughout this interaction he's going to use the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand um, to to really develop a metaphor for eternal life he's going to use it to to tie in this concept of the bread of life uh, as a metaphor for eternal life and we'll see him do that now one of the things we saw last week we uh, right at the end of the message last week we pulled up a verse from John two. you remember this passage we won't go back there again but john chapter two verses twenty three through through twenty five Jesus, it says, knew all men and he knew what was in man. And the idea is that he understood motives. Like Jesus was, is, is the only person that's ever walked on the face of the earth that's qualified to evaluate someone else's motives. By the way, that, that would include that you and I are not. But we often do that. We often try to engage in that. That's probably a message in and of itself. But Jesus could evaluate motives. And that's what's so amazing as to what he's going to say in verse 26. See, they're looking for him in verse 25. They're they're chasing him down. I mean, we looked at that word last week. There's some aggression. There's some intensity there. They're really, really trying to find him. And normally you're like, well, they're trying to find Jesus. That's a good thing, right? When people want to find Jesus, that's positive, right? Jesus is going to show us not for this crowd. Because he understands their motives. He sees right through it. In fact, we're going to learn here in this first verse here, in verse 26, Jesus knows them better than they do. He knows them better than they know their self. Jesus answered, in verse 26, and uh, answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. One of the things that's always interesting about Jesus, in fact, What's their question in verse 25? It's, when did you get here? You know, the answer to that is, is usually like, um, six o'clock, yesterday, uh, just a few hours ago. That's typically the answer to the question, when? It's so fascinating that Jesus, and he does this a lot. He, you'll notice this in his life. He always and only answers the questions they should have asked. You notice that? It's it's like he even knows what they should have asked him. And he just goes ahead and answers what they should have asked him. He did that with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is like, oh, rabbi, you're the greatest. We know you are You come from God. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's like Nicodemus didn't even ask him the question. He just nails him on it. Same with the woman at the well. And that's because Jesus knows all men. He knows what's in man. He understands their motives here. And so he goes right to the question they should have asked. And he's going to say it in this way. He uses this phrase, most assuredly, I think Robert's version King James says, verily, verily, those that grew up with the King James, you recognize that wording. It's it's a Greek phrase. It's amen, amen. It's just the, the same word repeated twice. And it's got this idea. It's like an emphatic way of saying what I'm about to say to you is super duper trustworthy. What I'm about to say to you, you can take it to the bank. You can you can trust me. I, I got a kick out of Josh's sermon um, a, a few weeks ago. And he says, now I'm about to tell you the truth right now. And he's like, Oh, well, I'm about to tell you the truth my whole sermon. He's like, he caught himself. But sometimes we, we said this. I don't think Jesus is, is making that kind of comment, but he's just saying, Hey, really pay attention here. Cause I'm about to tell you something that's super duper trustworthy. And what he's doing is he's, he's calling him out, you know, and, and sometimes people are right about our motives, aren't they? And they'll say something to you about your motive and you're like, Mm, nailed me that's exactly right. You're exactly right. Well, Jesus is right here. He knows exactly what he's saying. In fact, what he says is you seek me. And this word again has got that urgency. It's got that intensity. You're striving to find me. And again, as I mentioned, this is normally a good thing, but Jesus knows something about their motives for doing so. He knows there's something under the hood that's not good. Even though it looks externally like this is a positive thing, right? Last week we looked and boats were coming from Tiberias and they're all hopping in the boats and going to Capernaum and they're they're, you know, pulling up rocks, looking for Jesus everywhere. And it, that seems like that would be a good thing. But he's going to say he knows their motives. He knows why they're doing that. This is a fascinating statement. He says that their motives was not because they saw the signs. That's interesting. And the implication is what? If they had been seeking him because of the signs, that would be okay. In fact, that would be preferred to the reason they were actually seeking him. Uh, he wanted them to seek him diligently because of his signs. That was, that was a positive thing. That was the whole reason he was on earth doing signs, was again to validate and verify that he was indeed the Messiah. It was okay to seek him because of the signs. It was okay to evaluate him because of the signs. Uh, back in chapter 6, verse 2, the, then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. John's purpose for the book. I record these signs. Why? That you may be convinced and persuaded to trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. So following him for the signs was not a problem. Sometimes people try to make such a big deal about that as if there's, that's an improper motive. He's going to identify an improper motive here, but it's not following him because of the signs. That would have been a step up for this group actually. That, this would have been a purer motivation in this scenario. And so again, they, they were designed to convince and persuade people of his identity. Again, John the Baptist sends a messenger messenger to Jesus when he's in jail. Are you the one we're looking for? Should we look for someone else? Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I'm him. Send him, send that message back. I'm him. He says, tell John what you see. The lame walk, right? The blind see, the deaf hear. He He's pointing him to the signs because those were designed to convince and validate who he was. However, like many people in his day, they simply enjoyed the miracles that benefited them the most. And what was the miracle they enjoyed? All you could eat buffet, right? Free food. And you know what? Let me get some of that today, Jesus. And then when tomorrow comes, let me get some of that again today, Jesus. Everyone would love to eat food that you don't have to pay for. That's one of the blessings of church potlucks, right? (laughs) You get to eat food that you don't pay for. And, and typically someone's always bringing something better than you brought. So it's, it's a great, it's a great trade out, you know? So you're kind of, you're kind of used to your food and then you get someone else's food. You're like, wow, this is a blessing, right? But everyone wants free food and this is what, um, you know, benefited them the most in that day. Now, what's funny about this is when you kind of think about this, it's so easy to look back on this group and like criticize them. But this still happens today. We know this, don't we? And not just with people that don't know the Lord. I'm talking about people that know the Lord, believers in Jesus Christ. We do the same thing. We, We are more interested oftentimes in the benefits that Jesus provides us than in Jesus himself. That's really the issue here with this group. They want the blessings, not the blesser. They want the stuff, not the person. And you know, God is the exact opposite. He wants to give you the person. He wants to give you himself. And blessings follow out of that relational intimacy, but it doesn't always follow the opposite direction. In fact, how many times in your life, maybe you could give personal testimony, maybe you know somebody else, where you had all the stuff covered, but you were empty because you didn't have the person. You didn't have the person of Jesus Christ. You didn't have relational intimacy. And you've been told all your life, well, man, if I just get a house and I get a white picket fence and I have two cars in the driveway and I have three and a half kids, then life is going to be great. I've got the American dream. I've got this mortgage. I've got, I've got a boat. I've got this. Then I'm going to be happy. Then I'm going to be content. Then I'm going to have what I need. See, blessings without the blesser. And, and, and every blessing, just remember this, if this is a blessing, it's always tied to the hand of the one giving it to you. Now, Jesus isn't just flipping blessings out like a rock star at a concert. You know, Oh, here's my scarf and here's my, you know, like, no, He every blessing he provides is his hand is on the other side of that blessing, wanting to take you by the hand. It's a relational intimacy thing that we've got to see. These people didn't realize that, obviously. You know who else didn't realize it? And again, we're going to go Southern on them again, bless their hearts, right? Mark 6, 52. The disciples didn't get it. Uh, Mark 6 tells us that their heart was hardened. This is what he says, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. And so even the disciples, they had kind of lost view of why Jesus was there, who he was, what he was trying to accomplish. They were just, uh, they were getting confused. They, They weren't quite understanding what this was all about. And so Here he is again, and it must be all you can eat all you can eat buffet time again, right? Oh, here he is. Let's eat. Kinda it's kind of the deal. And this is what Jesus calls out. This is why he knows what's going on. He says it's not because you were following me because of the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Again, the mind of what I say natural man, unsaved man, and carnal Christians, by the way, we they can think the same way as an unsaved person. It's always on natural things. It's always on external things by nature. And and quite frankly, they needed to be bumped off this mentality. And if you and I struggle with this type of thinking, we need to be bumped off of this mentality. It's not about the things. It's not about the circumstances. It's not about external. And in fact, if you don't get bumped by the word of God or you don't get bumped by trials and circumstances and you don't get bumped by the Lord in some ways, You're gonna always think the goal in life is circumstantial perfection. That's what you're gonna, that's what you're gonna think is success in life. Circumstantial perfection. Perfect health, perfect wife, perfect husband, perfect children, perfect this, perfect church, which by the way, there's none that exists, not even this one, right? We know that. We know all this stuff, but our mind sometimes tricks ourselves into thinking that that's what we're looking for. It's incredible. The way we do it. It's the proverbial lawn chair on the beach with an umbrella, not too hot, not too cold, little breeze blowing in and somebody always filling up my sweet tea. That's what we think success in life is about. It's this circumstantial perfection. And by the way, if we were to really check our motives, how many of us actually want that more than we want relational intimacy with Jesus Christ? If you're being honest with yourself, if we're being honest with ourselves, we live many of the days on this earth looking for that picture instead of the the hand of the one who died for us and rose again. Isn't it incredible? And God wants to provide something much more than that. I mean, don't you know what it's like to go to the beach? You can't get sand out of your toes for five days. You get it in your car. You've just sweat your mind off lugging a cooler to the beach so that you can have ice cold drinks. And then you realize you don't have enough ice and you don't have enough drinks. And then you've got to walk back there. You've got people next to you blaring music that you don't like. You've got kids next to you that are kicking the soccer ball off your face while you're trying to take a nap in the shade. And then the umbrella doesn't cover your entire arm. And you've you got one section here. It looks like the state of California that gets burnt. So, I mean... Even being at the beach ain't all it's cracked up to be in terms of circumstantial perfection. And it's so crazy. The things things that we think we need, if we will just reject our own wisdom for once or consistently, we can actually believe what the Word of God says, that all you need is Jesus Christ. He's enough. And this is a message that we're studying actually in Sunday school right now in the book of Colossians. But... Jesus is going to tell them, look, guys, you're striving after the wrong things. You're focused on the wrong things. And he's going to use this word labor. He's going to use this word labor. Now, they get distracted by that word. But he's going to use this word labor to describe that they're having this wholehearted pursuit in life. And what he's going to do is he's going to take this wholehearted pursuit of him for food and he's going to transition to the real heart issue, which is a spiritual one. And I pray that we would allow the Lord to do the same thing in our life with whatever is in that place of the food in this story in our life, whatever that is. That you we would allow the Lord to transition us to to bump us off of this kind of thinking, because it it is not where true life is. In fact, what Jesus is going to tell him, guys, you're laboring for the wrong thing. You're after the wrong thing. Verse. 27, notice what he says. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. And so notice uh, how Jesus, this is what a master teacher does. I mean, just watch Jesus. It's amazing. He takes the issue at hand. He uses it, and he transitions to teach spiritual truth. He, he connects it. He's going to do the same thing when we get to John 15. You know, sometimes I think we think Jesus just made stuff out of the air. I am the true vine. Oh, wow, that's a good illustration. But part of the reason is, is is they believe he was walking by the temple at that point, and Herod's temple had a golden vine on some of the doors, and that he probably pointed to it and used it. That's what good teachers do. Well, he's going to do that here. And as we see through the, the passage, he's going to use a lot of different qualifiers to describe this bread. Verse 27, he he calls it the the true bread, right? The Which endures to everlasting uh, life. Actually, he calls it the true bread in verse 32. He calls it the bread of God in verse 33. He calls it the bread of life in verse 35. And as any teacher does, why do you describe the same thing 14 different ways? Why do you do that? Well, you're hoping one of the ways you describe it connects with everybody in the room, right? You're hoping everybody gets it. And so he's describing it in lots of different ways. He's giving all of these different uh, explanations. Now, why is he going through so much effort with this groove? Because his message is one of life and death. Not just physical life and physical death, but where you spend eternity. It's huge. So he's going a lot of different ways to describe this. And what he's going to tell him is don't labor for the food which perish perishes. And this do not labor, it's a, a present tense command. It means right now, with urgency, don't exert your own power or your own own energy to labor for something. In other words, you're 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 extending all of this energy for physical food. Don't do that. It's kind of the idea, you're, you're off focus. You're devoting your whole life. In fact, many of these people have already, if you recall the story, had already either run around the Sea of Galilee to be with him where he fed them, taken, uh, met somebody else there across, either ran back to Capernaum or paid for a boat. To, I mean, they're really making an effort to track Jesus down for more free bread. They're really going after it. And he's basically saying, look, guys, you are all in on this. <laughs> Don't be all in. This this ain't where you want to be all in. It's like, you know, playing cards with somebody that doesn't know the game and they're, they're, they're wagering. I'm going to use a poker example. Sorry, forgive me, please. But, but it's like you play poker with somebody. They don't know the type of hand they have and they're just betting the farm. And you're like, why'd you do that? You don't have anything. They don't understand that the value of what they hold is nothing. And this is exactly what Jesus is pointing out to this group. You're laboring for food, which perishes. You're all in on nothing. You're all in on something that can't provide you with what you're looking for or what you think you need. Also, because the command is in the middle voice, this is kind of an interesting sub-point. The idea communicated is for them not to do with the implication they would re- personally receive benefit from the labor. In other words, they were they were laboring to receive the benefit from it. It's a reflexive concept in the Greek. It's the reason they're laboring is so that they would receive the benefit, and that makes sense, right? If they're chasing Jesus down, and they think they're going to get free bread. They're going to benefit from it, and I'd like to think that the bread that Jesus broke probably tasted better than normal bread. I don't know. Maybe the fish he broke was. I like, I hate fish, but I could probably eat Jesus's fish. You know what I mean? So so it was probably good food too. It was it was it was all you can eat, and so you see that their action. Uh, Their labor, their focus, their occupation, what they're engaged in, it's all self-serving. That's what we see coming out of this. By the way, anytime you've got a present tense command in the Greek that's negated, in other words, don't do this, oftentimes it it can express right now, stop doing this. In other words, it's an action already in progress. You need to stop. It's kind of the idea. So that could be there as well. Now, what were they laboring for? What were they uh, what were they engaged in in terms of labor? They were tracking down Jesus for free physical food. This is what Jesus calls them out for, loaves of bread, uh, fresh fish. Now, as a tie-in, back to John 4, and we'll kind of make a couple of these. The, the woman was also laboring. What was she laboring for? Water. And what did Jesus promise her? He's promised her, I've got water that you'll never have to draw again. And what did she said? Give me this water right? I don't, I don't have to come up here in the heat anymore. I don't have to lug this heavy water bucket anymore. Give me this water that I'll never... Her mind went straight to the physical too. And Jesus had to keep working with her. Again, he had something much better for her. He's got something much better for this crowd. It's not all-you-can-eat buffet. That is not the goal in life. Big house, it's not the goal in life. Fast car, Tesla, whatever it it is for you, that's not it. I'm I'm, I'm telling you, that's not it. Jesus has got something much better for this group than just filling their stomachs. In fact, he's going to say, it's kind of implied. uh, He's going to say, but labor for the food, which endures to everlasting life. The the verb labor is implied here as something they should engage in uh, with their energy to pursue, right? It's, It's kind of implied, it's not repeated here. Uh, but the sense in which he term he uses his term labor is it, not in the sense of doing good works we're gonna we're actually gonna see that here it 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 kind of can get confusing in fact, I think this is why the crowd probably got confused um he he's using this term uh in the sense of um being concerned about it being occupied with it being focused on it being completely engaged with it and, and so Really what he's telling them is you need a complete change of mind in terms of what you view as a truly valuable pursuit. In other words, you're pursuing food that, 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 uh, that physical food that you want to eat, you should stop pursuing that and pursue food that endures to everlasting life. Okay. And this is, this is, he's going to use labor to keep doing it. Now, it's really amazing. And when we get to the verse, you're going to be like, I cannot believe these people said that. It's like, they're going to make this really snarky comment. They're going to they're going to get lost on this word labor and they're going to keep bringing it up to Jesus. And basically later they're going to say, well, what are you going to do to labor? It's kind of, that's the question. So we'll see that here uh, in a little bit. And so as we're going to see though, uh, in their response in verse 28, this is approximately where they stopped listening to the rest that Jesus said. They heard him say, but labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. They kind of missed everlasting life. They're going to get hung up on this word labor. And they're going to reply with something like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess we definitely need to do something for this food. Tell us what we need to do. That's going to be their response. They're going to miss the rest of verse 27. And what was missed is that that last part of this phrase, which endures to everlasting life, uh, everything that followed, Jesus had something much better in mind for them. They missed the concept that we're going to read in verse 27. If you look at your Bibles, um, this everlasting life is something that the Son of Man will give you. Second thing or third thing they're going to miss is because God the Father has set a seal on them. They just missed those last three phrases completely. And they just hone in on labor. Okay, tell us what to do. Tell us what to do. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. Sound like the Israelites of old. Whatever God says, we'll do <laughs> this big declaration, just give me something to do. And so Jesus says, don't labor for that kind of food, but labor for a food that endures into eternal life. Literally, it means to remain, to dwell. It's translated abide elsewhere. Um, And so there's this certain type of food that Jesus gives that remains into eternal life, meaning it it remains into eternity. This is what he's saying. So he's again, he's using physical food. He's transitioning now to spiritual truth. Now in John 4, he used living water to illustrate eternal life. And then he used, here he's gonna use living bread to illustrate eternal life. In John 4, he used drinking of living water as an illustration for believing in him. Here he's gonna use eating the living bread as illustration for believing. So you see Jesus has got a different audience. He's using a different method of teaching, it's this food or, or or this type of food, this this food that lasts into eternal life, or this topic. Maybe you could say, should be their primary focus, not another free meal today. You see, they needed to be bumped, they needed to be challenged off of how they were thinking, and so Jesus is is in this process attempting to bump them right now. And, and the problem is, as you're going to see, is it just the 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 switch just doesn't flip for this crowd they just they they just don't get it and and we'll see what they what they naturally think in verse 28 when we get there but i want to make a couple of quick comments about these last two phrases that they miss uh first of all notice that he says the son of man gives eternal life the son of man will give you notice uh, again who the giver of this gift is it's none other than jesus christ the giver of living water in john 4 now this phrase will give uh, it's interesting. It's a future indicative. It's, it, what that means is that he will give it. It's a guaranteed promise. If they meet the condition, which he'll give here in a second, this is a definite thing. It's not going to say, oh yeah, there's one more thing. No, it's when you meet the condition of faith in him, you, you are given eternal life. The word itself means to give of one's own accord and with goodwill. And the idea is that it's, it, it's like any gift. It's free. So, if I require something from you to give you a gift, it's not a gift by definition. You know, if I, and sometimes you can play tricks on little kids. It's kind of fun to do that sometimes. But say, like, hey, I'd like to give you this bike, but you've got to pay me $10 a month for the next 10 months to, to use it. And some kids will be like, oh, okay, sounds like a good deal. But it's not a gift, right? They just bought the bike back from me. <laughs> I just gave them 10 months to do it. So, it requires something. So, when we talk about Jesus giving eternal life, One of the things we need to understand is that he is giving it freely. That's by definition what a gift is. I hate to, I hate that we have to parse that. Some of you are thinking like, why is he making such a big deal about this? I'm making a big deal about this because there are other Bible teachers in our day that will tell you the exact opposite. They'll tell you that salvation's a free gift, but it's going to cost you everything man, I'm, I want to find that person that said that and I want to sell them oceanfront property in Arizona. I got just the perfect land for them, right? There's no ocean in Arizona. That's the, that's the joke, wow, my bad. As we've said before here, when I tell a joke that doesn't land, that's like, uh, that went over like a pregnant pole vaulter, you know, just not not very well. Anyways, a free gift is a free gift, It means you don't require payment, right? Notice again, too, and this is something subtle, but notice again that Jesus uses the phrase son of man. I keep bringing this out because he keeps mentioning it. And I just want to point out, you know, sometimes growing up in church, the the way I always heard this explained is son of man emphasizes his humanity, son of God emphasizes his deity. I don't agree with that anymore. I mean, there may be certain passages where that's the case, but when he uses "son of man," I believe he's using a messianic title that his Jewish audience would have recognized. It comes from Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen, and I want you to see how he uses it because it identifies him as the Messiah. But I also want to see the I want you to see the connection to eternal life as the Son of Man giving eternal life. Check this out: Daniel seven thirteen through fourteen. I was watching in the night visions. This is Daniel wa- uh, watching. And behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the ancient of days. That's God, the father, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is the Messiah. This is the king that God is going to establish in his kingdom. Then notice what he says. His dominion is what kind of a dominion? Everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. And you see, an everlasting gift can only be given by an everlasting God. That's what we see. The son of man is the one that gives eternal life. And then when we get to verse 28, they're going to be like, well, how do we labor again? They totally missed this point. I'm the son of man. I'm Daniel 7, 13 and 14 fleshed out for you. I'm the giver of eternal life. I bring eternity into the lives of one who will simply trust in me. This is who I am. See, heaven is, as a friend of mine likes to say, heaven's a gift for the guilty. It's not a reward for the righteous. And that's what every religious thinking will teach on planet earth. That for you to get to heaven, you gotta somehow behave and be a good little boy and a good little girl. And you gotta stop doing this and you gotta start doing this. And it's do, do, do do, don't do, 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 do. And if that sounds like something you recognize, that's exactly what it is. It is a bunch of doo-doo. That is just <laughs> not the way that you get to heaven. That is the exact opposite way that you, you get to heaven. How do you get an eternal reward for temporary performance? And you know, we were joking earlier, well, I gave up Pepsi for Lent Oh, I'm sure God's just so thoroughly impressed with you. I mean, that's a struggle. Wow. Pepsi, you gave up for Lent. That's not even hard to give up, right? (laughs) Especially in Atlanta. But see, it's an eternal gift. And this is what we got to take away. Salvation, eternal life is an eternal gift given to you for which you do not perform. And the reason you don't perform is because the Son of God performed for you. That's the whole reason he can offer it freely because he paid the price in full. That's the whole reason he can offer a free gift. And this is what they are missing here. And because Jesus is the Messiah, because he's paid the debt in full, he alone is able to offer this gift. Now, why can he offer this gift? And I'm slowing down here for a reason because I want you to see this in terms of what he's saying to this crowd that they're missing. Notice the very next word in verse 27. Verse 27. It says, which the Son of Man will give you. What's that very next word? Because. Now he's giving us a reason that the Son of Man is the one who can give them eternal life. And what we're going to see here, it's because God the Father approves of Jesus Christ. God the Father is satisfied with Jesus Christ. And he wants them to be satisfied with him too. That's the whole point of saying this. fact, he says that God has put his seal of approval on him. Setting a seal on him describes marking someone or something as a token of its authenticity or of his approval. It's to certify or to attest that something is so. And I want you to know that as you sit here today, you can be confident that God the Father will accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice in your place, in your stead, as your substitute so that you will never have to face that penalty. That's why John three sixteen is so beautiful. For uh, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in, uh that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, this is what I'm trying to get to, the two promises shall not perish. Why will you not perish? Why will you never have to go to hell? Why will you never have to face the death penalty? Because 2,000 years ago, your savior stepped on a cross and he took it for you. It's paid in full. That's why you'll never perish. And that's why a second promise, you have eternal life. Eternal lasts how long again? Forever. So if you have something that lasts forever, can you ever lose it? By definition? No. Because if you could lose it, then you can perish too. But you can't perish and you have eternal life that lasts forever. And it's all based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is what's beautiful. And guess what? God the Father satisfied with him. He's not looking for your two cents of righteousness to add to the work of Christ. Jesus did it 100% or he didn't do it at all where do you stand on that? I just say, stand on God's side. He's completely satisfied. We see this described here. We're going to, we see later in the epistles that that we use this great five cent word, you know, it's make you sound really smart at dinner parties, propitiation, propitiation. Some people put a hard T in there, but anyways, propitiation, It, it literally means that God was satisfied. His wrath was satisfied. We need to understand that about our Savior, so that you don't go through life picking daisies, thinking, oh, he loves me, he loves me not, oh, I just had a bad day today, I probably won't go to heaven. I had a good day today, I'm definitely getting in. Trust me, it, even if you had a good day, you still don't deserve to be there. That's, that's the truth of the Bible, not to hit your self-esteem any, but um, the truth of the Bible is none of us are good enough to be there. None of us deserve it. And that's why when we get to heaven, no one's going to be pointing at themselves. We're all going to have one finger in unison pointing at the one who died for us and rose again. That's going to be the answer when we burst down the doors of heaven. Why? Why are you here? Why should I let you in? It's because of Him. And that's going to be the repeated message of every believer that enters the pearly gates. It's not because you taught Sunday school. It's not because you were a pastor. It's not because you were a missionary. It's not because you knew some Greek words, you went to church, you lit candles. It's because of what somebody else did for you 2,000 years ago. And so God is completely satisfied with that. One of the things we need to understand is Jesus would always appeal to his primary witness, which is God the Father. He did that back in chapter 5. He's doing it here. He's going to do it again when we get to John chapter 8. He's going to keep saying, God the Father's. Impressed with what I'm doing with me. he's He enjoys the work that I'm going to complete. He's pleased with me. And if you can find anywhere in the Bible where God the Father is in some way not pleased or happy with Jesus Christ, point that verse out to me. It's probably in second hesitations where everything else is that doesn't exist. Now, I mentioned before, I think the group just turned their ears off after they heard the word labor. I don't think they heard the rest of it. I think their interpretation of laboring for food, which endures to everlasting life, was let's labor in such a way that we get food for the rest of our life versus the 40 years they got it in the wilderness with Moses. This is where they're going to take, this is where their thinking is going. I'm just kind of calling the shot there. And, and so we're going to see this by their question in verse 28. Now, I love this picture because this is this encapsulates Everything that we've just been talking about. Religion says do. Christianity, Jesus says done. Uh, and you've probably heard the story years ago. There was somebody that uh, was trying to convince their friend to put their faith in Christ alone. And this friend was just convinced they needed to do good works. And eventually, the, the way she convinced them, she said, "My, re- I have a four-letter religion. You've got a two-letter religion. Well, that automatically sounds bad, right? <laughs> I got a four-letter religion. But our four letters were D-O-N-E. His, his religion was D-O. You, you never quite know if you've done enough. And, and, and again, religion always wants to put the focus in the wrong time zone, what you must do today, what you must continue to do in the future. The Bible wants to put your focus on, a, on the past time zone, on what Christ did for you, what he's already accomplished. And so we'll see uh, their, their question here in verse 28 is, what shall we do? that we may work the works of God. Jesus answered and said to them, "This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent." So again, notice how they lock into this labor aspect of Jesus's comment with their question. They they say, "What shall we do?" present tense. "What shall we do right now and continually what should we continue to do to to form it, to produce it, to bring something about?" And see there completely missing the point here. They're missing those last free three phrases that Jesus says. And their mindset is a natural mindset. They say, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? In fact, someone calls you today and say, I want to offer you a free cruise to Alaska. The very first thought in every one of our minds is like baloney, right? I mean, that's not true. They're going to require something of me. And, And because we naturally, this is natural, man, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, salvation's uh, not cheap. It's free. It's free to you, but it was very costly to Jesus Christ. But he paid the price so that he could offer it to you for free. So their mindset is, what should we do? What should we continually do? And again, notice how they take what Jesus said in verse 27, and they now make it all about them. Isn't that something? Jesus is like, I give, the Son of Man gives eternal life. God the Father has set his seal on him. And they're like, okay, enough of that. Let's talk about us. This is exactly what they do. You come out of verse 27. Jesus has effectively put the spotlight on himself and on the cross. And he wants to leave it there. And he's hoping that they'll engage with this thought process. It's like, oh, that's actually probably more important. I want to keep the spotlight there. And they do this. They, they turn the flashlight to themselves. So how do you, how do you, <laughs> I mean, how do you even do that? How does your question become about what you must do and continually do to please God and earn food that he turns uh, endures to eternal life, and, and the reason they can do this is, is a very natural way to think. In fact, years later, we're going to see the Apostle Paul in jail in Philippi. The Philippian jailer comes to him and says, and notice the question. It's very similar. He brought them out and said, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" Present tense verb. What must I do right now and continually to be saved? And you know what Paul and Silas told him. They said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved, you and your household. Believe, aorist tense. Paul shifts it back to the aorist tense. Point in time action. When you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven. His death is applied to your account. You gain his righteousness. You are placed in God. We could go on and on and on all morning long about all the blessings and benefits you had the moment you trusted in Christ and understood that he died for you and rose again. All of the blessings that you possess. But this is how natural man thinks. What must I do and continue to do to be saved? What must I do and continue to do to labor in the works that God wants me to labor? And that's their question in verse 28. Notice, uh, this, this word, that, that we may work the works of God. It's a purpose clause indicating this desired purpose of their doing. In other words, what shall we do for the purpose of working the works of God? What shall we do to labor? You told us to stop laboring here, but to labor for this kind of food that lasts. How do we do that? It's kind of the idea. What do we do and continue to do? In fact, th- this word work, when they say may work the works of God, it's the same word translated labor earlier. So sometimes you lose that in the English translation, but they're they're picking up on this word labor. They're just, <laughs> they're bringing it through. It is also in the present tense, indicating right now and continually. Notice too, they make this, this word works plural. So what are they now assuming? There's got to be more than one thing I got to do. There's got to be this continual effort of things that I've got to do. And so implication, there's a lot. And so they're basically saying, okay, we want to labor for the food that endures, so what are we signing up for, Jesus? You know, before I give you my signature, I want to know what I'm committing to. It's kind of the idea. What do I have to do? What are the works that I have to do and keep on performing? And, and I love what Jesus does because he is going to abruptly correct their thinking. He Again, I keep using that word, but it, it keeps coming to my mind. He bumps them again. He, he wants to get their mind off of what they're doing for God and to get their mind on what God has done or will do at this point for them. That's, that's the opposite of most religious thinking. Religious thinking is what you must do for God, what you must commit to God, what you must sacrifice to God. Biblical thinking wants you to know what God has committed to you, what God has sacrificed for you, what God has done in order to uh, achieve a fellowship, an eternal fellowship with you that you could not do for yourself. You see, it's just opposite. I could say a lot more about religion, but let's keep moving because I am running out of time. This is the work of God, Jesus says, that you believe in him whom he sent. Uh, the word is, is, is also present indicative. And what he's saying is right now, where you stand and continuing, this is and always will be the one work of God right here. He, what he's about to say. And what he's about to say is that you believe in him, means to have faith in or to trust in, or to rely upon this, this, this Greek word pistuo that's the, the word to believe ice is a preposition meaning into, but this combination is used, I think like 90, 93 times in the book of John as, as the one thing that you've got to do to benefit from what Jesus did for you. It's putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And again, he's building off the vocabulary and the conversation, right? He says, there's only one work that's acceptable to God. And what is that work? It's trusting or relying upon the work of another. You know, some people will say, well, we're, we're not saved by works, but we're saved by a work. And I like that. That's a good distinction. Not a work that you do, but a work that Jesus Christ accomplished. That's how we're saved. And so we're saved by trusting in his work. We're, we're saved by trusting in what he would do for each one of us. And so keeping in line with this work or labor analogy Jesus is building, he's basically saying that the response that God wants each and every person to pursue and make sure that they get right is faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're going to go all in on something, if you're going to be occupied with something, if you're going to put all your energy and your effort and your expenditure into something, get this right. Trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. This is what he's going to say here because he's the giver of eternal life. Again, if you want to labor or work in the right way, you will trust in another and his work. That's the way God has set it up. And this is what we need to understand. This is uh, also God's strong desire. He he uses here um, in verse 29, if you go back, he says, this is the work of God that you believe that that word believe is used in the subjunctive mood. It, it just describes God's desire. This is what God, how God wants you to respond. And it's so amazing because much of what religion teaches you is that God wants you to respond in good works. First, he wants you to be born into the family. And then we can talk about good works. But we get the, oftentimes get the cart before the horse. Good works will actually hinder your salvation if you've never been born again. That's, that's never taught. It's just all thrown into the, the lump of whatever. Good works will hinder salvation if you haven't been born again. They'll actually keep you out of heaven if you haven't been born again. You need eternal life given by the Son of Man. That only comes when you put your faith in the work that he accomplished for you. Then we can talk about good works once you've been created in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 2.10 says. And so this is so amazing. You know, one of the things that's very sad about this to me, and I think very sad about this, is that God wants all people to be saved. This is a principle you see throughout Scripture. God has a heart that is bleeding for sinful mankind. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. And you know that hell will still be populated? Do you know that God has provided a solution so that nobody has to go to hell? And do you know that there will still be more people in hell than there will be in heaven? Even though a solution is available, a life raft has been thrown a life preserver has been put in the hands of people and people will reject Jesus Christ on a day in day out basis for all of their life because they are convinced that surely they have to do something. Surely we've got to, there's no such thing as a free lunch and they will simply reject the free gift of salvation because of their pride and their own human understanding that they've got to do something. See, this is the work of God, not the works of God, This is the work of God that you will trust in the one whom he sent. This is what it's all about. And so there's so many things that can distract us. And as we're going to see, um, it pulls us away from the main thing, which is faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Um, One of the things that we're going to see in this dialogue is what's distracting them. It's food. It's literally bread because they wouldn't have to work for it. They would get it for free all the time. That's what's distracting them we say, what a foolish thing to be distracted by. Man, let's pull out the mirror and see the kind of things we get distracted by on a daily basis. It's it's somewhat embarrassing. So Jesus lays it out simply. It should be clear. Uh, In fact, their response to what he just said should generate some questions on, wait a minute, you said son of man, do you mean Daniel 7? You said you give eternal life. What what does that mean? Wait a minute, you said the father approves of you. He said these are the questions they should be asking. We're going to see they don't ask the question. They're just going to say, feed me. I'm hungry. Basically. That's what they're going to come back with. Um, Just like this guy here, if my clicker would work, right? We all know cookie monster. Feed me. I'm hungry. This is the same mindset of the group that Jesus is talking to right here. We're going to see this in verse 30. That's for you, Ivan. I was looking for you earlier this morning. That's for you. Alright, so what proof can you give? Is, this is kind of how they're going to come back, verses 30 and 31. How can you prove this to me? Alright, you want us to trust you? Why should we trust you? They said in verses 30 and 31, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So there's lots of going, there's lots going on here. If you go back to verse four, it's Passover time. If you go back in the history of Israel, God fed his children in the wilderness from with manna from heaven for 40 straight years every day, except for that, right? They weren't to gather it on the seventh day. Every day for 40 straight years. Jesus just fed the 5,000 people or the 15,000 out in the wilderness. In verse 14, remember they said, "Oh, Jesus is the prophet that Moses predicted. So there's lots of things going on in their mind. And I think what they're saying is, okay, since Moses fed us, for 40 years, and Jesus just talked about food that endures to eternal life. Let's get going on that next round of food, Jesus. Let's see if you actually are the prophet that Moses predicted. Are you greater than Moses? I think is what they're saying here. And so to see this, they say, What sign will you perform that we can see this for ourselves? In fact, this then Uh, this word then connects us back to what Jesus just said in verse 29. They're basically saying, you know what? You're going to have to do a sign if we're going to believe in you. It's kind of what they're saying. Now, the irony of the statement here is this is the very same group that the day before had seen multiples of signs, plural, in 6-2. You can kind of read that. It's the same exact group that saw all of these signs where he was healing, diseased, and sick. Uh, It's the same group that was uh, just ate an all-you-can-eat buffet off of a boy's lunch. It's the same exact group. And and you wonder why they're demanding another side. Part of me, Jesus, you know, he's uh, he didn't say this, but part of me would be like, you mean apart from the hundreds of others you've already seen? You, literally, uh, like yesterday wasn't enough. You need to see more than that? I mean, it's, it's just incredible, the mindset of this crowd. And they want another sign, apparently. And then this is this is where they get a little snarky. What work will you do? And that word work there is the, the word labor. He's been talking about laboring. They use the same word back at him now, and they said, Oh, you want us to labor? What are you willing to do? This kind of idea. How are you gonna labor for us? Well, go ahead, do a sign. We're watching. Go ahead. You can see that it's a little it's getting a little snarky here with this. With this crew, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but this is the, the, the action they're taking, but they're pushing him to the point because they just want free food that like this is on their mind. Like, I don't know if it was lunchtime and they didn't have any food at home or they were super hungry. I mean, sometimes you, you know, you've heard people get hangry. Maybe that's what's going on here. I don't know, but they're, they're definitely coming at him a little bit uh with this question. So remember earlier, he'd implicitly stated that he'd already done uh enough signs that, that They should have known who he was. John 5, 36, I have a greater witness than John, speaking of John the Baptist, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Notice again, this phrase, this word translating the phrase, will you do, it's a present indicative, meaning right now, how will you labor to prove yourself to us? And and the idea is, go ahead, we're waiting and watching. Let's see what you can do. And can you imagine saying that to a man that just fed over 15,000 people the day before? Can you imagine the audacity to say, what are you going to do? Not be like, oh, yeah, I remember what you did yesterday. (laughs) That's not their attitude at all. It's like, what are you going to do? And so based on their next statement, it appears they are expecting another free meal. So did Jesus have their motivations right back in verse 26? It seemed like an aggressive statement at the time by him. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what they're all about here. In fact, he says, our fathers ate manna, verse 31, in the desert. It is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Implication, feed us. Feed us again. We know you fed us yesterday, but what have you done for me lately? (laughs) It's kind of the attitude. And so they they remind Jesus of the miracle of manna in the wilderness. Again, they've just asked for the sign and the implication is Jesus would feed them again. and if he would, they'd consider believing in him. That's really the point. Maybe the people made the connection and I and I think they did because they're going to go back and forth. He's going to keep talking about this bread uh, that he's the bread from heaven, right? He's going to kind of keep building on this. But Moses gave manna. That spoiled the next day. You remember this, remember that in the, in the Old Testament? The manna that he gave, you couldn't collect double. Like, I kind of want to take Saturday off and take the kids to the lake. I'm going to just collect double on Friday and then we'll have enough food for Saturday. The manna didn't work that way. You had to go out daily and collect the manna because it would spoil. And, and so I think maybe in their mind, they think, well, maybe the prophet that's greater than Moses would give us bread that would never spoil. In other words, bread that would endure into eternal life. My, the rest of my life, anyways. So I think this is probably what they're thinking here. Is probably the connection they're making. Uh, we know from history that the Jewish expectation when Messiah would come was that he would reinstate the miracle of manna. That was a common Jewish thought of the day. So they're like, well, if he's the prophet, maybe he's going to reinstate the miracle of manna. And now apparently it's not going to spoil. That's probably what they were thinking. So they're asking him uh, to do that. And you know what's what's sad is. You can almost hear this demonic, Satan-inspired temptation for Jesus. You know, Jesus, uh, Satan did that in Matthew 4. He basically said, oh, just make this happen and you can take over right now. To, to kind of turn him into this vaudeville sideshow act, to, to prematurely get ahead of God's timing. You can kind of see something like that happening here where, oh, just do one more miracle and we'll believe you, right? Heard that one before. And then how, then how many miracles after that? Oh, just one more. Just one more. Just one more until the end of my life and I don't have to work for bread anymore. It's kind of the idea of where they're going. So there's always this temptation to rush God's timing. There's this temptation to get to the end goal without doing it God's way. And we're gonna see Jesus stays the course. He's not gonna get rushed into doing something to try to impress the crowd. They should have already been impressed with him for multiple reasons as delineated. Let's just close there and we'll pick up there next week. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you for the clarity with which Jesus spoke uh, in the passage we looked at this morning, that the one thing that, that we should pursue or make sure that we get right is to put our faith in your dearly beloved son and what he accomplished for us. And um, Lord, we pray that if there's someone here today that's never understood that message, that they would be convinced and persuaded that what Jesus did for them is enough, that they can entrust their eternal destiny to him, Uh, Not because they're trying to be good, but because Jesus was good. Not because they are trying not to sin anymore, but because Jesus paid the penalty for all of their sins. That they would be trusting in him alone for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.